makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Joshua. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. This is a voice from Earth. It's good for all of us to be here. You are listening to First Voices Radio and Teokazin Goes Tour, sending you greetings. This is an all native hosted, all native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. And you can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices IndigenousRadio.org for archive, downloading, and listing. Elnor Ladha is an activist, journalist, political strategist, and community organizer. From 2012 to 2019, he was the co founder and executive director of the global activist collective The Rules. He is currently the council chair for Culture Hack Labs. Alnor talks of various possibilities involving the changes it will take for humankind in the Anthropocene. The language and attitude expose it would take for the recognition of capitalistic societies steeped in warmongering languages, speculative logo, and denial of indigenous cultures sustaining Earth, including harboring ideas to postpone the end of the world. Join us as we focus on the broader transition from our current meta crisis to adjacent possible futures. Today we have a good friend and colleague and mentor in a sense. He's much younger than I am. And my friend here is Elnor Ladha, a Sufi, Sufi man, Sufi being. I think what we'd like to do is have an impromptu interview and have a discussion within these energies that we are going to explain or exchange through words, the language of English and that it helps us along the way to understand each other because I think that's the purpose of this interview is to understand the energy and how to properly use this energy. Some people say consciousness, some people use religion, some people use politics, some people use science. And these are all authoritative. They all have a domination factor to them. And where I come from, there is no leaders, there's no followers, only people who walk with. That means 
we're all in relation to all elements, as we say, consciousness of elements. And that's where we, we garner our our presence, our, our present being here. Be here now, so they speak, you know, so they say. But we've always known that as Indigenous cultures and where you're from too also, Elnor, there is a consciousness. So first of all, I want to honor you and thank you for honoring us to being here on First Voices Radio. Mm, likewise, it's always an honor to be with you and to see you. It's so great to have you here. I think, you know, one thing that I'm feeling, because our, our short time we've known each other for at least a few years now, that it, there was always a certain energy of awareness being around you, being around the places that you come from in Costa Rica and probably where you grew up in Vancouver, Vancouver, um, British Columbia. But your family orientation, your lineage is, is Sufi. And what would that mean to people? Because most people think that's some, some odd, you know, it, it belongs outside of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it, there's no room for it within Christianity. Is that correct? Would I say that? Well, every uh, major religion has a mystical impulse. For Christianity, it's Gnosticism. For Judaism, it's Kabbalah. Uh, there's esoteric Buddhism. And then within Islam, it's Sufism. So the branch of Sufism I come from is actually a pre-Islamic impulse. And so when Muhammad has his enlightenment, uh, he comes down from Mount Hira and he says, oh, those indigenous people that are praying to the sand and the stars and the elements and the wind, uh, they actually have it right. And he merges Sufism and Islam. And after Prophet Muhammad dies, there's the Sunni-Shia split. And so... There's a Sufi element that's within Shia. There's a Sufi element that's within the Sunni Ummah, which just means community. And uh, in a sense, it's a really a universal spirit. It's a it's a Gnostic spirit of direct relationship to divine emergence. And my uncle Diamond, who's uh, one of the core lineage carriers of our tribe, uh, his explanation, if you will, sort of comes in four parts. He says, uh, Allah, God, divine emergence, cosmic mind, whatever you want to call it, Allah is a metaphor for the universe becoming self-aware through you. The second premise is this self-awareness, this consciousness is distributed through all of life, does not reside in the human mind. It's a distributive spiritual cognitive impulse that is in all beingness so don't get into your anthropocentric hubris about the thing uh, consciousness is not uh, exclusive to the neocortex it's distributed the third is uh, act accordingly so there's no rules no masters no molas no imams no popes no qurans that take precedent over your direct relationship of being an emissary of divine emergence on a divine living planet and then the fourth is all the rest is commentary (laughs) you know that's how simple sufism is Uh, allah becoming self-aware through you and all the attendant responsibilities and consequences that come with that you described one day on a ride from brave earth in costa rica to san jose about the energy and your energy of being a sufi you described as as assassin where does that connotation go with many people? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so our branch of Sufism uh, followed Fatima, Muhammad's daughter, uh, who's considered like the Sophia of Islam, mm-hmm. the perfect female incarnation, 
who is uh, Ali's wife, uh, who's the, um, you would say, the founder of the Shia branch, um, to to uh, Egypt, and they set up the Fatimid Caliphate in Cairo, um, probably around uh, the initial migration was around 680 AD, and then it sort of took hold in around 800 AD and hit its sort of uh, peak, its zenith, in about 900 AD. And it's considered the, the golden period of Islam. And um, through a combination of the Crusades and the sack of Cairo by the Seljuks, who were uh, um, kind of came from the Turkish Caucasus Mountain areas and were actually funded by the Christians to sack Cairo. And uh, the that caliphate was actually called the anti-caliphate in many ways because um, there were Zoroastrians, Christians, Jews, Muslims, uh, Manichaeans uh, living in harmony uh, in this sort of uh, golden period. Uh, intellectually, they created a wisdom school uh, called Al-Hakim. And my ancestors flee to Persia, which they were in for about 700 years. And in Persia, the Fatimids sort of morph into the Ismailis, this, this one of the names of the tribes. But externally, they were called the Hashasin because they were working with Syrian Ru, uh, which is an ayahuasca analog. Um, it's basically a 5-MeO inhibitor that creates uh, the experience of DMT in your body, especially if you're meditating in dark caves. And they were working with hashish as an activator. So the word assassin literally comes from Hashasin. The English word is derived from, from my tribe. And so when I talk about being an assassin, it's not in the context of uh, 12th century Persia, where you know they were in exile, in hiding, being persecuted, and they uh, abandoned nonviolent Sufism to defend themselves. The way I think of uh, spiritual assassinism, if you will, in the modern context, is uh, introducing aspects of yourself to other aspects of yourself. That is an assassin move. Right, whether that's internally within the, the disparate parts of, of the colonized heart, mind, body, soul, psyche complex, or even uh, bringing together uh, disparate factions that should, you know, at least on paper, have conflict and strife. And so the role of the assassin in many ways is the role of the alchemist, which is bringing together these various parts. Uh, uh, we also talk about fana, the annihilation of the ego. The, the annihilation of self. And, and that's kind of what we mean by, by being a spiritual assassin, is to be able to confront those shadow aspects that have been amplified and uh, in some instances created and curated by late-stage capitalism, by the complexity of this moment we're in and 5,000 years of consequence from the initial city-state, hierarchy, militarism, patriarchy, inequality, white supremacy, our bodies are holding the mimetic landscape of these thought forms over 5,000 years. And so part of the assassin work is to find those colonized aspects of us and integrate them with our higher selves. He talks a lot about energy. <clears throat> and the, uh, the energy you talk about is, you know, confronting the ego, dissipating it somehow, but it never goes away, as you know. And this is our, our life chores, our life responsibility, so to speak. And a lot of people want to just go to the to, to the temporal fix. Mm -hmm. And they derived, they create, 
these workshops, so to speak, to placate mm-hmm. what next workshop they should have. And but yet it's not about finding a cure. Would you say it's more about understanding the healing that we is ongoing every second, every moment, every in, in, innocent moment that there is. Mm-hmm. So what would the consciousness of innocence be within playing or within fitting your consciousness of being a Sufi? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bring up... There's so many interesting th- threads and strands that we could we could pursue, but uh, one starting place is this acknowledgement that consciousness is temporary. Th- this idea that you somehow uh, achieve an enlightened state and then you can stay there is, is part of the the New Age myth. In in Sufism, we say um, state is gift, station is earned. State is gift, station is earned. So you can access these uh, non-ordinary states and, and these higher states of being, but the station to actually not just have that as a temporary blip, but to, to live in that frequency requires deep cultivation of practice. Um, we call mantra zikr, which literally just means remembrance. To, to constantly be in that non-dualistic, non-separation remembrance of all that is and all that is moving through us. And that's a very difficult practice, especially in a culture that wants temporary fixes, that wants solutionism, that has, you know, as you say, like retreat consciousness, right? which says so much even in the word retreat. I'm going to go to this ayahuasca retreat. I'm going to go to a Vipassana retreat. And well, what, what are you retreating from? And, and why? And in what context? And, and what, what are you healing What for? are you treating? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so part of... Uh, my work in this intersection between spirituality and politics or mysticism and anarchism, which are the same impulse, which is no gods, no masters, uh, direct relationship with the divine in relationship to all else that is in the interconnectedness and the interbeing of living within this woven fabric of life. And what it requires is to first understand the context we're in to understand the texture of capitalist modernity, to be a good student of this culture. There's no such thing as consciousness in absence of context. And and we we seem to think in our culture that you can just achieve these states. And and what worked for Buddha 2,500 years ago or for Christ 2,000 years ago or Muhammad 1,500 years ago uh, is not necessarily going to work for us now. There's not repeating some mantra 108 times and the genie's out of the bottle. It's much more complex and new and nuanced than that. So first, let's look at the context. Many traditions, mystical traditions, indigenous traditions, have this uh, this deep prophetic cyclical understanding of time. The... Hopi would call this the time of the sixth sun, the Iroquois, the time of the seventh fire. Uh, in the Vedic tradition, they say this is the Kali Yuga, this is the Dark Ages. And, and they understand time to be cyclical. And so you, there's a line in the Vedas that says, uh, if you don't know you're in the Kali Yuga, you're of no use to the Kali Yuga. If you do not know you're in the Anthropocene, you're of no use to the Anthropocene. This ascension narrative, uh, the Bill Gates worldview, right, that... Uh, well, there's a microwave in every house and GDP is increasing, so therefore the world must be getting better. 
is a highly delusional colonialist worldview. When we actually take stock of what's happening right now, 200 species a day going extinct on, uh, uh, essentially through our addiction to consumption and comfort and the satisfaction of uh, lower self-desires, our shopping on Amazon.com, etc., um, you know, we're mitigating for a three-degree rise in temperature by 2050, which is correlated to 40% of biodiversity loss, right? 40% of all life will no longer be with us because of our fossil fuel extractive cannibalistic consumption modality that is the default logic, right? Neoliberalism, which is not separate, you know, it is essentially just the latest chapter of uh, late-stage capitalism, of, of capitalist modernity. And I like this frame of capitalist modernity because it's, you know, academics talk about this period of modernity as this kind of sociocultural mode, right? And leftists talk about capitalism as this kind of uh, socioeconomic mode, but the two are completely intertwined. So to understand capitalist modernity is also a spiritual practice, right? If we spent one third of the time we do in contemplation of the effects and consequences of our way of living that we do in going to self-help retreats and reading uh, Tony Robbins or Joe Dispenza or whatever people are reading these days, we would already have a revolution on our hands. But we, most people are not taking responsibility for the moment in time and the historical context in which we have incarnated because they feel victimized and sort of brought into a world that doesn't belong to them. And so the coping mechanism and the strategy is to get as much as we can on the sinking ship, to have the first-class cabin on the Titanic. That's the logic of the invisible hand, right? If everyone just behaves very selfishly, somehow this perfect equilibrium will be created. And it's deeply delusional and deeply psychotic and deeply cannibalistic, I'm asking right now, all these questions that come up don't have solutions. Mm -hmm. And often how we are programmed to answer. We talk to each other about we're exchanging energy. And I think about these energy being misused. It all ends up with Earth. And I think a lot of this, these ideas that esoteric thinking is that we we have made ourselves so heavenly we're no earthly good anymore. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with dogma. And when you think about before religion, before science, before government, what was there? What is there? Not just what was there to, to put everything in the past or to the, too much in the future means mm -hmm. that we're not here. Mm -hmm. You use this phrase, present phobic language. I'm very aware of that. In certain languages, in certain indigenous languages, we, we cannot think or be anything other than first person. Mm -hmm. How do you convey that to people who are so hungry for this type of perspective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you've taught me a lot uh, about old Lakota, for example, and the, the fact that uh, it's a verb-based language. So you don't say uh, a storm is coming, you would just say storming. And there's so much hidden in the syntax and the grammar and the coding of language they call it spell and spellings and spells for a reason. And so when we have uh, binary oppositional language like English with lots of nouns, lots of thingification, we disconnect ourselves from the present moment. 
And we have a culture that is based on a lot of uh, historical trauma and future planning simultaneously. So it creates this present phobic phenomena where we are not here the, the way you and I are here like this now. It's, it's a very rare interaction. Uh, and then you add the fact that everyone's trying to survive late-stage capitalism. And so there's these fields of commodification, right, to turn something into commodity. What can I get out of this? Most people walk into space and they're net takers energetically because they're thinking, how do I, quote-unquote, network? You know, how do I uh, get the thing I need in order to survive? And again, we get into this very reactionary survival mechanism. And that's how most social interaction happens. We, we have a word in Arabic called adab, A-D-A-B. And it comes from al-adab, which is uh, when there's an al-prefix, it's uh, an aspect of the divine. So uh, al-adab is divine etiquette, cosmic tact. So someone walks into a room they're not trying to fill their insecurity and their desire for recognition. They're just praying for every being in the room. They're praying for their ancestors. They're praying for the wind. They're praying for the elements. They're uh, praying for other dimensions that might be overlapping with this dimension. And they only spo speak when they're spoken to or asked or if it's in service to the group field. My mom would say, that person has good adab. So we, we don't use etiquette in the sense of, uh, you know, Western European etiquette, how you cut the asparagus with the right knife. It, it's it's uh, a kind of communal spiritual hygiene. And we have a culture that is uh, etiquette illiterate, ceremonially illiterate, culturally illiterate, because that's how the dominant culture feeds us. We are born into a culture none of us ratified. We go into schools essentially for vocation. Even in elementary school, you have to decide what high school you want to go into, that it has your focus. And in high school, by grade 11 or whatever it is, they're asking you, giving you the seven bad options you have, lawyer, dentist, architect, engineer, banker, whatever it is, right? And uh, the entire system is focused on creating cogs for the capitalist machinery. And so we're, we have this deficit of etiquette. We have this deficit of learning to be net energetic givers. And we're net energetic takers. And in, if there's only one of us here, uh, which you know, Sufism and uh, indigenous traditions and mystical traditions tell us is true, uh, having a distributed cognitive spiritual experience, and that doesn't mean there's just oneness. Sure, on some existential level, that's true. And we have these histories in our bodies. We have these epigenetics. We have these cultures. And so there's energy to mind. There's energy to take care of, to steward. And, and that requires etiquette. That requires uh, some form of cultural training. And intact cultures hold that for us. Cultures based on initiation where you cross thresholds so you can be in deeper service to the community, to the tribe, to the clan. We don't have that. We have a culture that tells us if you are in service to yourself and the acquisition of material resources, you will somehow be worthy. And that bankruptcy, that deep spiritual and moral bankruptcy is at the core of a crumbling civilization. And that's Eldor Ladha, an author of Post-Capitalist Philanthropy, Healing Wealth in a Time of Crisis. We'll transition into the second half with music and more of First Forces Radio. My name is Tio Kazengo Please join us for that second half in 
mentally chew, intelligently chew on these words that were said and will be said. Thank you for joining us. My name is Teokasen, Ghost Horse. Whisper in the wind sent me home. I'd believe there was something more. Learned so much, fell in love with you. Took my chances with what I knew. With the places that had stained my hands. And the files that I'd stored on my shelf. Spent so long in the world giving chase Thought my place was some other place But I belong here, I belong with you And all of our questions belong here too Cause we've been high, darling, we've been low And all of it's helped us grow We belong here and we deserve Discussions in my brain. I don't know the answer and I don't know the truth. And I don't really know what I've been dragging since my youth. But I push on, I philosophize, and keep my prophecies by my side. And I hope to meet you at the gates, see that light shining on your face. Cause I belong here, I belong with you And all of our answers reside here too Cause we've been high, darling, we've been low And all of it's helped us grow We belong here and we deserve To bring about some change And plans would form To build a brand new castle To the sky we'd soar With the wings of an eagle Stone cold sober With whiskey on my breath South America Running through my head With you I was taken It was you I was not mistaken belong here, you belong with me, and all your secrets are safe with me, cause we've been high, darling, we've been low, and all of it's helped us grow, we belong here and we deserve. Trees and all we have is swimming in the ocean, and all we can do is 
be the best that we can All we want is running down the mountains And all we need is flowing through the trees And all we have is swimming in the ocean And all we can do is be the best that we can All we want is running down the mountains And all we need is flowing through the trees And all we Swimming in the ocean And all we can do Is be the best that we can be And I hope to meet you at the gates See that light shining on your face Welcome back to First Voices Radio. I know you didn't go anywhere. Those of you just joining us, we're interviewing Elnor Ladha, author of Post-Capitalist Philanthropy. And we're discussing many things, including consciousness, changing languages, viewing the world differently, the world to come, while being in the present. Join us. My name is Tioksen Ghost Horse, and I want to mention the song Xavier Rudd, out of Australia, We Deserve to Dream. And now let's rejoin the interview with Elnor Ladha. There's a term called trauma optimism. What do you think about that? I, I think there's so much pathologizing happening around trauma in the West. It's become the new monotheism, right? It's the We didn't have this word in the vocabulary 30 years ago, and now it's the excuse for all sorts of bad behavior. Um, given the culture that it's born out of, we even feel entitled to our trauma. <laughs> because it's such an entitlement culture and that we feel entitled to project usually in projectile fashion onto other people our trauma and um, trauma is not just like the impact of the wound it's also the reconfiguration that happens in the body and so for those of us whose ancestors have lived on the receiving end of imperialism and colonization and genocide and uh, uh, the domination of capitalist modernity, our ancestors went through these deep, deep trials and tribulations, these crucibles of, of being, in order for us to walk a different way. And so we have more resilience in that sense. And so we can pathologize trauma and see it as uh, just the the kind of uh, synthesis of victimization that exists. Or we can also see it as this gateway, as this uh, initiation portal into uh, redemption work, into not replicating that trauma because we know what it feels like. At, at least, you know, epigenetically, the science will say seven generations. I believe it's much longer than that. Um, we can get into, you know, the limitations of, of uh, scientific materialism and rationalism and reductionism, but um, it's living in our bodies. Our ancestors are living through us. And you and I have had this conversation before that we are the living prayers of our ancestors. And those who have endured that type of resilience, uh, you know, you can see the gate and the way uh, uh, an African-American walks and the way an indigenous person walks and the way uh, Palestinian immigrants walk with, with dignity because they've faced and their ancestors have faced a certain brutality that actually induces compassion and empathy and interbeing. 
And it's not universally true, but there's a disposition towards that way. And, and I do believe in post-traumatic uh, stress uh, or post-traumatic growth. <laughs> you know, that, that these, these, it's not just uh, PTSD as a disease, but, but there's these deep potentials if you can integrate it, not amputate it, just like the ego. We're not trying to amputate the ego. It serves a purpose, but to integrate it into a more holistic, directional, teleological place where it's in service to the living world. And w without orientation, without a compass to say, the reason I've incarnated is to be in service to this point in history, this context for Pachamama now. That's why we're here. And when you have that orientation, you don't need purpose in a job. You don't need purpose in uh, material acquisition. Uh, my uncle uh, always says to me, your, your life is a consequence of your prayer. You don't like what you're seeing around you? Go to your altar, do your zikr, refine your prayer. And then the work will come. He's not saying don't do anything. It's kind of like the Taoist concept of wu-wei, uh, action, non-action. It's by being in your center and knowing why you've incarnated and why you're doing what you're doing and service to what, in what context, you get your marching orders. You keep your antennas up, you put your head to the floor, to the soil, and you ask Pachamama, how do I be in service to you? And you'll be given direction. You don't need a career counselor for that, you know. <laughs> life, life coach. <laughs> a life coach, yeah. yeah. There's some words that you used, and it took the longest time for me to try to understand them. One is prayer. Wachekia, wachekia basically means to acknowledge relationship. Mm -hmm. It's simply seeing things beyond the face value, tip of the iceberg, the material world, to know what makes what's behind the sun that we see here. What's behind it? Do we send a rock up there, or we just accept it for what it is. In other words, we're not trying to solve the mystery. The mystery has us figured out already, so what's the big deal? But it's the controlling and decoding of these thoughts into this language that we're speaking that we have to standardize everything. It's a form of colonialism. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about origin peoples, original peoples, that's an energy. And I think that consciousness is has emerged. It's always been here, but we haven't had enough prayer to understand the relationship completely the the merger of christianity and empire and imperialism in uh the early roman period of of you know fourth century a.d um in mesopotamia and the so-called fertile crescent basically contorted prayer to now be uh asking some mediated God up there for what you want materially, which is uh, anathema to the concept of prayer, which is more akin to energetic service and reciprocity. It's permission, dialogue, consent, gift. And that can only come from a deep understanding of gratitude. Only if you are grateful for your existence can you reciprocally send gratitude back into the living cosmos. And so when you're in a commodification culture, the, one of the early casualties is gratitude itself. So one of the primary mantras in Sufism is a gratitude prayer, which is shukran lila wa alhamdulillah. Mm. 
And you'll often say Arab people, you'll hear them say shukran instead of thank you. Because there's no agency in it. There's no cause and effect. There's no you and me or the illusion of your separate identity. Uh, it literally means all praise due to Allah the Most High and you are Allah becoming self-aware. So it's a nod to cosmic entanglement. And then when you deepen the field of gratitude, then prayer can then begin. It's more akin to incantation than it is to some kind of extraction, which is this kind of Christianity meets capitalism meets commodification, uh, you know, at, at the crossroads of, uh, you know, some desert outpost, which, which is what it became. And, and that's a bastardization of what true reciprocity is about. This word respect, simply to look again. To look again. I think that's what's missing from the so-called formula when I speak about seeing things again, thinking again, sitting down before you speak, feeling most people say, well, we have to go to the heart. It's this journey that people want to take. But there are cultures that come from the heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the thing is to take us off center. So heavenly and earthly good. So when we turn it around, the earth consciousness that we know as, as indigenous folks, this is the consciousnesses. And you talk about multidimensional languages, not the binary of this language we're speaking now. There's many people that, who do not see beyond the perimeters of the parabox that I describe, as you know. And people want instructions of how to do that. What would you say to someone who, who knocked at your door and says, please tell me what to do, Elnor? Mm -hmm. So um, in this book that I recently wrote with, with Lynn Murphy, um, we, we talk a lot about ontology. So ontology comes from the Greek onto, which means being. And sometimes it's translated as vision. So it's the isness of the world. In, in philosophy, the questions that come around ontology is often like, what is reality? How do we agree on what reality is? What's objective versus subjective? All of those kind of questions. And it's a branch of metaphysics. But in some ways, it's very simple, right? It's, it's just the isness of the world. And so we as people who have been socialized in the West and conditioned in Cartesian, uh, binary, axiomatic logic, you know, premise, premise, conclusion, we are always jumping to solutions. But if we are within the dominant culture's ontology, we will just replicate and amplify the negative aspects of the culture that we're embedded in. And, and you see this, right? Like Tom's Shoes is the perfect uh, example, not to, you know, pick on one, uh, uh, you know, brand or whatever, but it's it's emblematic, right? That um, the, the do-gooder in us, we're going to sell a pair of overpriced canvas shoes to someone in the West, and then we're going to just airdrop all these shoes to these African villages, right? So like hundreds, thousands of shoes in these African villages. They don't have water, they don't have food, they don't have... And that's solutionism, that's the, that's the logical outcome of solutionism. And what ontology teaches us is the manner by which you approach is more important than what you think you are approaching. I'll say that again. The manner by which you approach is more important than what you think you are approaching. And so I'll, I'll just really uh, bring it to like a material example, okay? So uh, you and I are sitting in front of this uh, wooden table. Okay, the audience is going to have to do willing suspension of disbelief and trust us that there's this wooden table between you and I. In our ontology, we are socialized to believe that this is dead 
inanimate matter that we are entitled to do with what we want. I call that the unholy trinity of capitalist modernity uh, by three words. Separation, materialism, rationalism. So the separation, which is the top of this unholy triangle, is that we are separate from the living world. We are superior. This is the anthropocentric hubris. We're at the top of the evolutionary game instead of the youngest species, for example, which is a, a different way to see uh, less evolutionary years. So we are separate and we are superior. And then, of course, within that comes all the other hierarchies, right? The white Christian male is the pinnacle of uh, Western European enlightenment logic and colonial logic. And that's not like some historical past. We are living in the ongoing coloniality and legacy of those ideas every day. We ratify them every day. And we, we're living that experience of, of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of uh, Christian imperialism and domination. Missionary work is still going on everywhere in the world, right? Um, and it's deeply connected to corporate capitalism. It's deeply connected to the American and Eurocentric imperialist projects uh, that are still in their perception, in their heyday. The, the sun is not setting on the British American empire. So separation is the top of that pyramid. And then you have materialism, which is this table and the entire world can be reduced to its constituent parts. Everything can be reduced to the atom, the atom, the proton, the neutron, the electron, and now with quantum physics, the photon or the quark or what have you. And the, literally the aim of modern science is to get to the grand unifying theory of everything. And th this is the arrogance right, of, of the, the Eurocentric mind, is that we can reduce everything and be able to understand it, which is the rationalist part. Not only can we understand it, we are entitled to decode mystery in all its complexity and understand it with this very early evolutionary neocortex. You know, we're still negotiating verticality, as, as Lynn Murphy likes to say. Right? We're still negotiating verticality. We're not even like fully upright yet. And we think that we're going to master the, and dominate the entire universe and then get to the moon and Mars and perpetuate our colonial insanity over there. And so here's another ontology, right? This table that's sitting between you and I, and this is going to be very familiar ontology to you. Um, we can call this, you know, a quantum, queer, mystical, indigenous, entangled worldview which is this table is kin. It has sacrificed its life to be here because of its humility. I am not entitled to do what I want to this table outside of consent and relationality and reciprocity. And what I do to this table directly affects me. We share the same atoms, the same source of life. We are children of the guy in whole in equity. Now, that is a completely different relationship. And it's not like this is just a turn of a key, that I can just switch my ontology from separation, materialism, rationalism, to animism, relationalism, and uh, complexity. Right? It takes practice. And that was the point of culture. Right? Culture is worthy of the word culture. Indigenous cultures, for example, mystical cultures, uh, Taoism, you know, these, these sort of ancient traditions, they held a, a communal container for you to be born in an environment where that relational animistic 
ontology was embedded within every cell of your body, within your vision itself. And so then the world is cast upon you differently. And so when people ask for solutionism, partly what I go to is deepen your ontological practice, deepen your shifts of going from rationality as the pinnacle to transrationality, to many ways of knowing, being, sensing, feeling, relating to the world, uh, to a kind of relational worldview instead of a rational worldview. Moving from materialism, that we can reduce the world to its constituents, to animism, to everything is alive and interconnected and quantum, and a kind of going from certainty to embracing ambiguity, not knowing, complexity, reverence. And that is, I guess, you know, you would use the word respect. That's the commensurate respect, the re-perspective that is required in reciprocal exchange for the gift and miracle of life. We are, there's a Sufi proverb that says, you are entrusted with everything and entitled to nothing. And it's often attributed to the great mother speaking to her children. You've been entrusted with everything. You've been given oxygen, 4.4 billion years of Gaia's evolution, 15 billion years of the universe's evolution, uh, cognition, uh, opposable thumbs, all of it, right? Uh, but you're not entitled to it. And entrustment is very different energy than entitlement. Entrustment has responsibility, it has sobriety, it has an understanding of consequence, an understanding of limits, and this is a culture that does not understand limits or consequences. And as a result, we're in the age of consequence. 5,000 years of destruction is coming down to bear in our lifetimes, in one generation. Very thought-provoking, heart-provoking. When I think about freedom... That's what this society, Western societies, fight for is freedom. They have to fight for it. And all it is is responsibility without domination behind it. Being free where the word just disappears. You don't use the word at all. It's a new concept. I think it's unlearning how to use this language that captures us, keeps us in a pair box. You mentioned something earlier. and There's ecological diversity. There's bio, biological diversity. What's missing in that link, I think, is cultural diversity. That's what, you know, the sciences have. And, and then I'll add another thing to it. I, have, I think it has a lot in a, in a distance, far distance thinking is in 593, the Western culture, it was against the law for them to grieve. And then came the Black Plague. And even more so, they needed the energy of the people who were grieving to bury, but also to keep the dogma going in whatever form it came in. And from that point on, thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago, that's what the West has been in. That's why it has become good and evil, very dualistic. People listening to this broadcast are often asking, but how do we do something? But I never give them the answer. I said, that would be like trying to solve the mystery and we can never do that. We just have to accept the mystery. And that's being not, un, not tolerant of other religions or spiritualities. It's, it's actually inclusion in relationship. So I'm going to end this by saying, I'm standing still on the view from the shore. I'm standing here 
on the shore watching the ships come in. And the ships are still coming. Okay, so the, the way I'm going to approach the question is uh, I'm just going to make my thought process explicit partly to demonstrate what it is to be in practice of the ontological shift. And so my starting place when you give a provocation like that is let's first understand the impoverishment of this culture and to really understand the context and, and spend some time in contemplation of, of where we are. And when we do that, then we can actually orient ourselves outside of solutionism. And then our desire to then run to the solution, I, I then start with, well, uh, what is my bodily experience? Uh, I think rooting our, let's call it embodied cognition, because there's no mind-body split. Uh, we're an ecosystem of ancestors, of a microbiome, of bacteria. What is it rooted in? Well, I'm in a male body, I appear as, you know, Middle Eastern, Arab, Persian, Indian, what have you, which comes with its own prejudices and its own privileges, as all bodies do. Why have I chosen to incarnate in this body? And I'm not even saying this is true or not true, but let's assume that we've decided to incarnate in white bodies, black bodies, brown bodies, indigenous bodies, trans bodies, straight bodies, queer bodies, uh, neurodivergent bodies, what have you. And then there's some responsibility that comes from that, which is an understanding of history and how bodies like mine have moved through space and what they've dominated and what they've received. And, and then when I've sort of married context and I've married the somatic experience, then I bring the ontological lens in, which is, but what lens am I trying to solve this problem with? Like, what sort of rationalist, materialist, separation-based uh, anxiety am I trying to uh, solve, as you, as you would say, uh, solving the mystery, right? And why am I trying to do that? And then is there a way I can be more available to the living world for her to give me direction in how to even answer that, right? And so there's a, there's a, um, a Sufi line that's considered heretical, and it says, uh, the body is the prophet, the Uma is the prophet, the desert is the prophet. Uma means community, a community of practitioners. So what it's saying is, is it's heretical in the sense that, you know, in, in institutional Islam, there's one prophet, the final prophet, Prophet Muhammad. Uh, and what the Sufi heretics are saying is, well, the body is the prophet. Your body is a fractal whole of Gaia herself which is a fractal of the universe itself. And so you have to find your wisdom in your somatic experience, which we're so disconnected from. We don't even know what foods we're eating. We're having uh, you know, GMO and glyphosate and all, all, you know, all of the, the neurodisruptors in our, in our ecosystem uh, consuming crap in order to just like stay awake. And so it's not just the, the somatic experience in absence of the context, in absence of what's going inside the, the, the body. And then you say the community is the prophet in the sense that cognition is distributed. It's not just a decision I can make on my own. All this Joseph Campbell hero's journey stuff, it, it, it's such old paradigm. It, it, it's such sort of enlightenment, Eurocentric, Western, uh, the John Wayne, one person will come and save the day. And it's like consult with the people around you, human more than human, uh, 
open that dialogic channel and that's where you get the sense data of what's yours to do. How am I supposed to know even what I'm good at or not good at? I need a community of people. I need elders, right? I need people around me that are like, here's how you would best be in service. But I'm not going to know that unless I ask. And then the third part is the desert is the prophet. And that was their ecology. And what they're saying is that the earth itself holds the answers to these questions. That if we can tap into the guy in enteleki, enteleki is a Greek word that means within itself it has its own purpose, its own understanding, its own agency, its own desires. That, uh, you know, neuroscientists have been looking now for 30 years to, to solve what they call the hard problem of consciousness, right? Because they have this mechanistic metaphor of the mind and they say, well, the brain is just a machine. And so if consciousness, what they call mind, is coming from the brain, then we must be able to understand consciousness in the same way and therefore it must reside in the brain. But we're now understand, and they're literally, they, they have no answer after 30 years and billions of dollars in research on where consciousness comes from because they're starting at the wrong place. Their circular logic has already trapped them. Consciousness is also in our gut biome. It's also in the bacteria in our bodies. It's also in the cells. Uh, it's, it, it's distributed, just like it's distributed outside of us in the living world. And there is no human consciousness in absence of an ecology. The food that grows in your bioregion is determining your consciousness to a certain extent. The oxygen that you're breathing, the type of water that you're drinking. There is no consciousness outside of the ecology. Ecology and consciousness are correlated, discursive. They feed on each other and reflexive. The, the feedback loops between them are self-determining. And so the desert is the prophet. And so we're like looking in the completely wrong place or one limited aspect of one limited aspect in even our attempt to understand these questions, which is why I really applaud your um, resistance to feed people solu solutionism and the hopium. And, and it's not that I, I don't have a sense of hope or that... If you don't believe in hope, you're therefore a pessimist, right? That's just another old binary. It's more that I don't have anthropocentric hope in a culture where the anthropos is so distorted. But I have hope in the guy in Entelechi. And when humans align themselves with the more than human and the guy in whole, that's when the interesting things will start to happen. Like, we have no idea what's going to happen, but... I know that if we shift our ontology, the option set that's going to be in front of us, the superpositions of possibility will be much more vast than if we try to figure it out with our rational brain at this level of consciousness with the ontology of separation, materialism, and rationalism. We could pick it up next time. Next interview will be about intuition. I'm honored, and most people will be listening to this. I'll give the information about how to get a hold of the new book, Post-Capitalism, and good friend... A mentor, in a sense. I'm honored that you're here on First Likewise. Voices Radio. Likewise. Thank you, older brother.
First Voices Radio. We appreciate you all for listening to First Voices Radio. I will see you again eventually, surely. My name is Teokasen Ghost Horse. And again, thank you. Thank you.